Good morning. You know, whether I'm the best preacher or the worst preacher in the world, whether our music is the best or the worst in the world, whether this church is a beautiful place or an ugly place, in a way it doesn't matter if God doesn't use it, which is why I want to begin a sermon with a prayer that God would use whatever we have today for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts, Lord, and think through them. And take our hearts and let them burn within us for you and for your world. Amen. We're continuing this morning this sermon series we're calling Echo. And I want to have a, begin with a question. The question is this. If Christ is risen from the dead, then why is the world the way that it is? Have you ever wondered that? See, one of the reasons why Easter is such a big deal and why every Sunday is, in fact, an expression of Easter is because the church believes that because Jesus is raised from the dead, everything he taught was vindicated, and God's ultimate victory over evil and sin and death is assured. In fact, the Apostle Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, Where, O death, is now thy victory? Where, O death, is now thy sting? Death has no more power because Christ has been risen from the dead. This is why the early disciples at the time of the crucifixion fled in fear and scurried away like rats to hiding places. But when the resurrected Christ appeared to them, they were emboldened and went and preached with great courage all over the world. Two, as we're going to read in a little bit, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But it still raises the question, at least for me, and you're probably like me and have wondered it at times, which is, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then why is the world such a mess? In fact, maybe you're here today and, and you aren't a Christian or you're not sure what you believe. And one of the reasons is because you look around at the world and you think, if this is true, then why is there so much betrayal and brokenness and blood in this world? My wife and I went over the weekend to see a movie. It was about a conflict between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the United States government. People, innocent people's lives were in danger. There was a lot of rhetoric and just fear. Now, the movie of, that we saw was about events that took place in 1979 and 1980. But here we are in 2012, and it seems like it's the same thing. We're worried about the Republic of Iran. There's always war on the horizon. See, not a whole lot has changed in some ways in human history for the last 2,000 years. There's still places of war, of famine this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you, we live in a place of plenty and a place of peace, but you're in the midst of a hard, broken place this morning. So again, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then why is the world the way it is? That's actually a great question to ask, and you're in good company. It's a question the disciples asked in the scripture passage that Kenneth just read for us this morning. You may have missed it, and I want to draw your attention to it. And it's related to the idea that Christ has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. It's related to this fancy thing called the doctrine of the ascension. Through this series called Echo, what we've been doing is trying to look at some of the basic doctrines of the faith. What does it mean that God is the creator? What does it mean that Christ was crucified? What does it mean that he was raised from the dead? And what we've been using to look at the basic doctrines of the faith is something called the Apostles' Creed. A creed is like an ancient syllabus or summary of the faith. The Apostles' Creed has roots way back in the second century. And it says things like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The church thought that was an important thing for people to remember. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then here's the line we're going to look at today. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Believe it or not, I think this theological doctrine that most of us have no idea about, the ascension of Christ, which we just read about in the, in the, the book of Acts, is related to this question, which is, if Christ is raised from the dead, why is the world the way that it is? And here's the thing about this world. This world is a difficult place. And if you and I, and if the church isn't trained and formed to kind of the basics of the faith, when difficulties arise, we won't be able to withstand them. And when the choice comes to us to be about reconciliation or about racism, to exercise generosity or to be clutching and greedy, to be courageous and bold or to be fearful, when those choices come to us, unless we've been trained in the faith, we won't be able to withstand the pressures. In fact, the reason why so many of us get so discouraged and disgusted with the church in America is because I believe we haven't been training Christians well enough to withstand so when the moment of temptation and trial comes, they're able to be good witnesses to the gospel. In fact, in the ancient church, there was a long period of training. It was called catechesis. It's related to where we get the word catechism. And that during this period of catechesis, Christians were taught what the basis of the faith was. And the reason we're calling our series Echo is because the word catechesis and the word echo in Greek share the same root. So my question for you today might be, how faithful an echo are you of the message of Jesus? If other people are walking around you, what are they hearing? Are they hearing the gospel or are they hearing something else? What about me? I wonder when people hear me, are they hearing a faithful echo of what I've been taught through the church, through the message of the saints and martyrs? We're looking today at the book of Acts. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the author of Luke's Gospel, the third one. But Luke is also, maybe you didn't know this, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. And so as it says here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says, In my formal, former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. When he says my former book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. So the book of Acts is like a second uh, volume of his history. The book of Luke comes to an end with the risen Christ appearing to his disciples and ascending to the Father. And the book of Acts begins with Jesus appearing to his disciples and ascending to the Father. And in a weird way, the end of one is the beginning of the other, which is what I want to focus on today. We are in good company when we wonder, <laughs> if Christ is risen from the dead, then why is the world the way it is? It's the same question that the disciples asked Jesus here in chapter 1, verse 6 of the book of Acts. When they met together, that is when the disciples were together with the risen Christ, they asked him, Lord, verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, you've been raised from the dead. Is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, to understand that question and to understand what the disciples are asking, we need to work back through the story of salvation. The story is the disciples would have known it. Of course, all the early Christians were Jews. And like good Jews, they would have known the story. The story begins with a prologue. In fact, one way to think about the message of the faith is to think of it as a great drama. Beginning with a prologue. The prologue is about the creation. 
It's about Adam and Eve and then Noah and Babel. The prologue is told, if you look at it in the scriptures, in Genesis 1 through 11. And the story of the prologue begins with this beautiful idea that God so loved the world that he made it. But from the very beginning, the creation is turned against its creator. You think that it's unique to you and me that we can say the world is a mess. According to the message of the scriptures, God has seen it as a mess almost from the very beginning. Since the time sin entered the heart of Adam and Eve and Cain murdered his brother, the story of humanity and the creation has been one of brokenness and betrayal and murder ever since. So it comes to the point at the Tower of Babel that the people mistake themselves for God and want to build the tower to go all the way up and put themselves in God's place. This is a prologue, and the disciples would have been very familiar with it, told as it is in the beginning of Genesis. But the disciples would also have been familiar with the first act of God's great drama. In Act 1, God sees this guy in the middle of the desert. His name is Abram. And God says to him, you're an old man. I'm going to give you a new name. It's Abraham. And through you and your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That happens in Genesis chapter 12. And from then on, the story of Act 1 is the story of God's work with Israel. Abraham does begin to have numerous descendants. And they begin to call the children of Israel. They move into Egypt in a time of famine. Ultimately, a pharaoh arises who doesn't remember where they came from. They're subjugated and enslaved. But God hears their cry and he sends his servant Moses to free them. Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, my, on behalf of God, my people have cried out to me and I've heard their cries. And Moses brings the children of Israel out of the promised land, as it says in the Psalms, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. On behalf of God, he parts the Red Sea, brings them to the promised land and they begin a kingdom. And David is the first of the great kings that God has set to lead his people. But, just as in the prologue, the story is the same. Israel constantly turns away from his God. And so God sends the prophets. And the prophets come to give a message from God to the people saying, turn back. The way you're headed is leading you towards destruction. And they don't listen. And Isaiah comes, and Jeremiah, and Amos and Hosea and the people are hard-hearted and keep turning away from God. And ultimately, it does lead to their destruction. And they're brought away into captivity in Babylon. And the nation of Israel is no more. Now, during this time, there began to be an understanding that one day, God would send his Messiah. Lots of the prophets began to speak about this anointed one that God was going to send. And the Messiah would be the one that would be like a new king, like a new David. In fact, he would even come out of Bethlehem. And this new king, this new David, this Messiah would make everything right. And when the Messiah came, all wrongs would be righted, the poor would be lifted up, the lost would be found, and God would be with his people. So the disciples meeting with Jesus knew this story pretty well. And so, in act two of this drama, they began to put the pieces together. Because Act 2 is about Jesus of Nazareth. There's this great place when 
John the Baptist has disciples, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. And they say, are you the one that is to come? That is, are you the Messiah? Or should we keep looking? And Jesus essentially says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that is to come. And later on, Jesus puts the question right to Peter. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. Christ is just a Greek way of saying Messiah. You're the Christ. So they came to have faith in this man, their Messiah, and they followed him as his disciples, and they learned from him, and he taught them things. And so you can understand their panic when the same Messiah, who was supposed to right all the wrongs and make everything come to uh, new, you'll see their problem when the same Messiah was crucified. Obviously, one who's crucified can't be the Messiah. He must have been a nice man, a good teacher, but if he's been crucified, clearly God's plan has been stopped with him and there must be another Messiah, which is why the disciples in their fear scurried away. They had nowhere else to go, but they know the one that they had been following isn't the one. And this is also why when the same Jesus was raised from the dead and encountered the disciples, this is why they gained such courage and boldness. Because then they realized that after all, Jesus was the Messiah and everything he said was vindicated. And all, everything sad had become untrue. And so the disciples figured it was time for the final act of the drama. In the prologue, God created the world. In act one, he made a commitment to it to save it. In act two, he brought about the Messiah. And in the final act... There would be new creation. And to paraphrase Sam Gamgee, everything sad would become untrue in the new creation. At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John the writer says, there's a new Jerusalem and God will be with his people and there will be no more crying, tears, pain or death. That's what's going to happen. And one symbol of the new creation would be the resurrection of the dead. Even death would have no more power, and God would reverse the terrible sequence that started with the first sin of Adam and Eve. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus was so important. Because when the disciples realized that Christ had in fact been risen from the dead, they said, the final act has begun, the new creation has come. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, there is the new creation. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus is like the first fruits of the general resurrection of the dead. In other words, Paul says, when Christ came and was raised from the dead, it, it was like you see the first blossoms of spring or the first uh, wheat in the field. You know that the harvest and the time of abundance is coming. Which brings us right back to Acts chapter 1. See, in Acts, they've met the risen Lord, they've encountered him, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore Israel? In other words, now we've realized you, in fact, are the Messiah, the world is still a mess, is this the time when you're going to write it? I mean, after all, Caesar's still on his throne. After all, Pontius Pilate's still ruling in Judea. After all, there's still a lot of brokenness and blood and betrayal in the world. Lord, 
So now you've been raised from the dead. Is now the time you're going to get to work? And Jesus' answer is very interesting. And his answer is essentially, not yet. Or, I'll begin my work, but I'm not going to finish it yet. See, what Jesus tells his disciples in the book of Acts is that, in fact, there's another act to the great drama of God and his creation. Jesus puts it like this. This is Acts chapter 1. Verse 7. And they say, is this, is this the time? Are you going to do what you've come to do? He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky where he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Jesus says, I'm going to do what has been promised. The final act will happen. But in the meantime, I have a plan that I want to work out. And he says, the way the plan will work is the Holy Spirit will be poured out on you. See, at the time of his birth and at the time of his death and at the time even of his resurrection, Jesus was in a body. You know, the resurrected body is different than our bodies now. I don't quite understand it. It seems mysterious. He eats fish, but he also can go through doors and comes go as he pleases. But somehow he's still in a body. But at the time of the ascension, when Christ goes up to be with the Father, and when the Spirit is poured out, no longer is Christ bound to one particular time or place. In fact, the Spirit of Christ is available to all people in all places. This is why today the Holy Spirit can be at work in China and in Dallas. This is why the Holy Spirit can be at work, surprisingly, at the State Fair and in Rome today and in Sri Lanka and in South Africa. Because, because of the ascension of Christ and because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God can carry the message and the salvation of Christ to all times and places. So the first thing Jesus tells his disciples is, is another act. And the Spirit will be at work in this act. But this third act is the act of the church. I'm going to preach on the church in a couple of weeks. It's another phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we want to look at. But I just want to tell you today that the church is not an accident. And the church, though it is a mess, though it frustrates you and I, though we're so disgusted often at the way the church doesn't live up to the promise that God has given it, still the church is God's means to save the world. And the Holy Spirit has been given to the church. And Jesus says, you're going to be my church and you're going to start in Jerusalem. And then you're going to go to the rest of Judea, to Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. And I would say the proof that what he said is true is the fact that we're here worshiping today. A few disciples, unlettered Galilean fishermen, cast off women, formed the beginning of the church. And in fact, they were Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even to the point that we are today. 
See, in this third act, God is graciously inviting us to take part in his salvation of the world. Now, I still don't know why it is that Christ hasn't returned and set everything to rights completely. But partially the answer must be that God in his gracious wisdom is inviting you and I to play a part in this great drama. Still, we must say that God has given us the opportunity to carry the witness, to be witnesses to Christ. Which means, where the church is, and there are hungry people, they ought to be fed. And where the church is, and there are lonely people, they ought to be comforted. And where the church is, and there are people enslaved to addiction, the gospel ought to be proclaimed, and they ought to be set free. This also means that you and I have a role to play in the church's ministry on this earth. This week, I was in a small group in my house. We have small groups in this church. We call them kitchen groups. I have one in my living room on Wednesday evenings. We're very different people. We have all different sorts of stories. And we're sitting around and we ask each other this question. How is your life in God? And the answers are all over the place. Some people have given these, just had these tremendous answers about God working in their lives in a way that had never happened before in their adult lives, finding a new church and a new purpose. Others of us said, we're we're not really sure how to answer that question today. We know that God has more for us, but we feel like we're not experiencing it. But what I found so moving about just sitting around in my living room this week is how obviously the Spirit was at work through the ordinary people of the church. You and I say, you know, the problem with the church is the ordinary people. But also that's part of its glory and its beauty that God uses people like you and me and redeems us and uses us as his hands in the world. See, through the church, even through this church, the lost are becoming found. The addicted are being set free. The lonely are being brought into a new community. The poor are being preached to. The hungry are being fed. I even see that happening in our church, in our imperfect church. And I believe God can use you and me in the same way. Part of the answer for the reason for the ascension of Christ and part of the answer of why hasn't God come back and made everything okay has got to be because he's allowing us to have a part in this drama that he's playing. In fact, you could put it like this. You could say, each of our lives tells a story. Each of our lives is a play. I wonder what this this morning what your story is and what your play is telling. See, you probably have a prologue. And in your prologue, as it says in Psalm 139, God knew you before you were even born. You are not an accident. You are incredibly precious in the eyes of God. But the story of our lives is the same as the story of all humanity. We turned away from God. We try to make ourselves in the position of the creator. And in your story, just as in the story of salvation, in the first act, God's been trying to get your attention through many different ways. Maybe you had faithful grandparents who brought you to church. Maybe you have just barely missed out on some difficult pain and tragedy. God's been trying to get your attention, and many of us have turned away. But in Christ and our lives... 
We're given a new opportunity. Christ has been raised from the dead, which means that the resurrection power that he came to bring is available to you and to me. And some of us this morning can testify to God's power in our life. We were dead, so to speak, and now we've been made alive. And we know where the story is ultimately going to go. We know in the final act, we'll be caught up in the new creation. But the question that I have for you about your story is this. What role are you going to play in this third act? Now that the Messiah has been ascended, the Spirit has been poured out, the church has been created, there's still space for you. tragedy it would be for you to spend your whole life and miss the incredible purpose for God, for which God created you, to be used by him to bring his redeeming message to the world. May God give us the grace to respond and take up our part in this incredible story. Amen.